Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, today is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. It's a very important feast, and the readings are very rich for this day. Here's the first thing we have to keep in mind when it comes to the baptism of the Lord. The baptism of Jesus was very embarrassing. It's true. The baptism of Jesus was deeply embarrassing. Here's the one that the first Christians maintained was the Savior, the Son of God the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So, why the heck was he seeking a baptism of repentance? And there's, there's no getting around it. John the Baptist was operating along the Jordan River north of Jerusalem, and he was offering a baptism of repentance. He was inviting sinners to come to him to repent of their sins, to stand in the water. He would baptize them and wash them of their sins. Hmm. And Jesus comes to him. That he came, there's no doubt about that, it's in all four Gospels, it's clearly witnessed to, and if there was any reason for them to drop it, they probably would have dropped it because it was so embarrassing. But yet there it is in all four Gospels that Jesus begins his public ministry by seeking a baptism of repentance. Huh. What gives? Why did the Gospel writers include this? The strangeness of it, of course, can be heard in the Baptist's own words. As Jesus presents himself, John looks at him. And you can imagine this look of consternation. And he says, I should be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me. This is just not computing. The Gospels, the public life of Jesus, get off to this sort of odd start. But see, as is always the case with the Bible, there are lots of ironies in the fire. The Bible loves to play with these twists and turns and ironic things. Look, yes, the Gospel writers insist that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. Yes, they insist He's the Word made flesh, the one who takes away the sins of the world. No ambiguity about that. But what they want to show you is how strangely this God operates. He lays aside his glory. He lays aside all his prerogatives. He lays aside any sign of distinction. And he slips quietly into the cold, muddy waters of the Jordan River. No one would particularly notice him as he got in the water. More to it, he stood side by side in those waters with sinners. Imagine now the people coming to John the Baptist. Oh, probably some ordinary run-of-the-mill sinners. But I imagine, too, some pretty serious sinners. People pretty spiritually lost were probably coming to John seeking peace. 
Jesus slips in quietly, unobtrusively, and stands right with all these grubby sinners. And even humbly submits himself to the baptism of John. Look at, you know, for most of us who like to make something of a public splash, we like to look pretty good. The first move of Jesus' public life is to look about as bad as you can look. That's the point. That's the irony of this story. The first move of the Word made flesh when he breaks onto the public scene, the first move of the sinless Son of God is to make himself look like a sinner, is to stand shoulder to shoulder with us sinners. This is the whole revolution of Christianity. Go back to Greek philosophy. Is God the supreme good? Sure, sure. The supreme good that from a great distance moves the world by attraction. The world is drawn to God. But that God would pay attention to the grubby world? That God would come down and stand with the sinful world? No Greek philosopher would ever think that was the least bit reasonable. Even in the Jewish context, what you see in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the others, the holiness of God and our offensive sin. How, how offensive we are to God who is so pure and holy and good and then there we are in our sin that God would come down and enter into our condition identifying with us to the point where he would appear among us as a sinner unheard of. And yet that's the way the public life of Jesus begins. God the sinless God, yes, but going into God-forsakenness. Paul says, Christ became sin. It's very important. He's not a sinner. If Christ is a sinner, then all of Christianity falls apart. But the sinless one identifies with the whole attitude and predicament of the sinner so as to bring God's love and forgiveness even down to that place. How wonderful that John the Baptist himself, who's identified as the last of the great prophets, he speaks in the language of Isaiah and Jeremiah. When the Messiah comes, he will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. He'll have his winnowing fan in his hand. He'll clear the threshing floor and he'll burn the chaff in unquenchable fire. Good. That's the language of God's justice, typical of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last of them. Which is why, wonderfully, which is why when Christ comes and John, with his prophetic insight, understands who he is, he's, he's puzzled. He's flummoxed. But, but, what, what, I should be baptized by you. What, what are you doing? Do you see how he's the voice of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the whole Old Testament? This is not how God is to behave. Yet that's how God behaves. Humbly standing with us sinners, sharing his love, even to the point of identifying with us in the muddy waters of our sin. That's the surprising way 
that God breaks upon the scene. Christians, God has come in Christ to forgive our sins. That's why He's come. He teaches, yes, heals, yes, but at the heart of the matter, and it culminates on the cross, He's come to forgive our sins. How wonderful that it's on the lips of Jesus all the time. How wonderful that it's at the very heart of his public ministry that he's the one to forgive sinners. I've come not for the healthy. I've come for the sick. I've come for the sinner. At the Last Supper, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all. Why? So that sins may be forgiven. That's why he's come. That's why he's come. And it's signaled here in the baptism. He comes to stand humbly, salvifically with us sinners. You know, there's a lovely passage from the prophet Isaiah that accompanies the gospel for today. Listen. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoldering wick he shall not quench. That's a description of the Messiah when he comes. Again, a bruised reed he shall not break. It's a reed that's been, been cracked, you know, it's, it's broken. And the temptation is to say, that's, that's useless, it's hopeless. Just crack it in half and throw it away. No, when the Messiah comes, he's come to repair. He's not come simply to, to cast aside all of us sinners who are offensive to God. No, no, he's come to heal these broken reeds. And then this lovely image. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Imagine now if I were to blow out this candle and there'd just be a little bit of, of heat and flame on the, the wick. Well, you'd say, well, it, it's, it's hopeless. Just, just blow it out. You know. To take the time to cultivate even that little bit of flame, to cup your hands around it, to, to blow on it, to spend the time. That's what the Messiah has come to do. Not to, not to put out the smoldering wick but to try to lure it back into life. We're all meant to be on fire with the divine life. In our sin, we're like these wicks that are about to go out. Christ has come to enter right into that experience and try to nurture that life back. That's why he's come. You know what comes to my mind here? Let's say you're a coach. You're a really good baseball player. You know the game well. You've coached at high levels. And then you're watching a little league game little kids trying to learn the game. Well, how tempting it would be for you to say, I can't waste my time with these kids. Or just to burst out in anger. Can't you hit the ball right? Can't you throw straight? Especially if you're, you're a gifted player. Especially if you're a great coach. But now, imagine that same person, great player, gifted coach, who takes the time to crouch down next to this kid, get down on his knees, and show the kid how to hold the bat. Show him how to stand, how to watch the ball, and there even to guide the swinging of his bat. That's, I know it's a, it's a very distant analogy, but it's something like what this gesture of Christ is about. God doesn't just pass judgment from on high. He doesn't, he doesn't extinguish the smoldering wick. But he enters into this state of ours in all humility with a desire to bring us back to life. That's why he's come. When John objects, as we heard, Jesus says, Give in for now, 
We must do this to fulfill all righteousness. A great word. It echoes up and down the Bible. Righteousness. It means setting right. Sin is the loss of righteousness. That means our relationship with God has been broken. Righteousness. It's not primarily our task. The great revelation of the New Testament is it's primarily God's task. It is a grace of God that we are set right. It's done through the gracious humility of Jesus coming into our sin and setting us right. After he's baptized, listen now what it says. After he was baptized, he came directly out of the water. Suddenly, the sky opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and hover over him. With that, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son. My favor rests on him. Christians, we're on very holy ground here. This is the first great theophany of the Trinity. That God is one, that God exists, yes, there's a great claim of the Old Testament, remains true. But here now, here we see fully displayed the dove of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Father, and the humility of the Son. All three persons revealed to us. Now, why and how? Precisely in this moment of humble love, who is the all-powerful God? He's the one who loves even to the point of death, the one who loves even to the point of identification with the sinner. God's fullness is revealed when the incarnate Son slips into the muddy waters and stands right with us in love. That's when God is fully revealed. That's the power of this great feast. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that, together, we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. Most interment arrangements at the 42 Archdiocese of Chicago cemeteries are made through a pre-need plan. Your thoughtful planning today is economically prudent and contributes to peace of mind for you and your loved ones. Catholic Cemeteries counselors are available at your convenience. For more information, call 708-449-6100. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837.